Canadian. I like sucking. Come on, man. Legit bad podcast. He has a legit bad. back to Legit Bat. We have a live show here tonight with uh, Dr. Joseph Farrell, and we'll give you his, uh, you know, his qualifications as we go. It's quite the educated dude. Uh, Ben's joining us soon. As usual, has some technical difficulties. I'm trying to find him right now. It looks like he still hasn't joined, so that's cool. But thanks for joining. Uh, sound off in the chat if you're there. Otherwise, just enjoy the show, and we'll bring Dr. Farrell right in. Hey, look at that. Ben was right on time. Oh, my Sweet. God. That was amazing. Nice. Can, can we hear you, Ben? Or? Uh, yeah, you should be able to. Yeah, right. I'm just perfect. checking levels since I didn't no get to lag. sound check with you. But uh, So, Dr. Joseph Farrell, just tell us a little bit about yourself to get going here. Ben hasn't even met you yet. Like I told you, that's my brother. And uh, I, I told him very clearly that you're a man of time. And we have an hour with you, and we appreciate yes. it. Very and much so. Thank you. So we'll just get right into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you uh, got got your school in, and all that stuff. Uh, well, my I did my PhD at the University of Oxford, um, and I did it in an area of of uh, theology called patristics, which is the study of of the church fathers. Uh, it sounds like a rather obscure degree, but it's actually a kind of a it's kind of a broad and deep degree. You have to have lots of languages. You have to have lots of philosophy and law, you know, history of science and things like that. And it, you spend a lot of time with texts, with documents. And uh, it, it kind of equips you well for doing the kind of books that I like to write because I, I'm a documents person. So, you know, <laughs> I go over old texts and so on and so forth. But that, that's basically me. Wow. That sounds like a lot more than I could ever handle. I, I can even barely learn Spanish and not get confused. <laughs> I, I have a problem with English half the time. Ben will tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so I saw uh, that you had uh, several degrees. Is that right, though? You have a PhD and then something else, too? There's a couple well, other I've got, things. I've got a BA and, and an MA. Um, oh, is that all? Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> nothing. It's... It's, you know, it's, I just want the regular track back bachelor's graduate school and, and then the postgraduate work. So that's it. Wow. Probably one of the more educated people we've had on here. We're just a bunch of dum-dums over here. <laughs> yeah. I stopped well, at I bachelor's like remind, too, I, mean. <laughs> I like to remind people that I'm a hack from South Dakota. So, you know, we're all in the oh. same boat. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you're from. It's all good. So what first gave you the, uh, inclination that something was uh, awry in the matrix you know what what started you down the kind of a meh, we'll call you a conspiracy well, theorist yeah. <laughs> well if, uh, if i might really quick uh joseph i i know nothing about you so uh from the beginning of what joe just asked uh i would like as much detail to set the scene as as you can possibly give what got me started well, I was six years old when President Kennedy was assassinated. And as a matter of fact, I was home that Friday, sick from school. And I was sitting on the living room floor, you know, eating my chicken soup. My mom was watching her shows. And they broke in uh, 
to As the World Turns, an old soap opera that used to be on CBS <laughs> that my mom used to watch. And they made the announcement that the president had been shot. And, you know, we, we were sat glued to the television set the rest of the day. My father came home early from work and we were glued to the television set all weekend. And then, of course, on Sunday, uh, Jack Ruby on live television shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And we were all sitting there, you know, watching this and listening, listening to the spin, listening to the narrative. And the first thing I remember was my dad kind of grunting in disgust when, when they started tailor, fashioning the narrative that Jack Ruby had shot Oswald because he was upset that, that Oswald had shot Kennedy and he felt bad for Mrs. Kennedy, you know, all, the, all this nonsense. So I kind of tucked that back in the back of my mind. And a year later, the Warren Commission published the Warren Report and it was excerpted. If you were alive at the time, the conclusions of the Warren report were excerpted in all the major newspapers and media around the country. Our local newspaper carried this diagram from the Warren report of the magic bullet. <laughs> we know, just talked doing, about that last night. Yeah, yeah doing, doing all of this you know, strange stuff. And we were sitting at the dinner table. My dad was reading the, the local paper where they're going through all this and slams it down on the, on the table. And I looked at it and I just looked at my dad and I said, bullets don't do that, do they? <laughs> Not typically. Yeah. Not typically, no. And he said, no, they don't. And that, that made me skeptical from, you know, I've been a skeptic uh, from that day forward of, of all these narratives. So I in part credit it to the Kennedy assassination and having watched it, you know, uh, in real time. Um, and my father, the other part of the story is my father was an engineer and uh, and his friends in, in Sioux Falls, where I grew up, were, were also engineers. And I, uh, they used to play cards every Friday night with each other, you know, alternate back and forth between people's, each other's houses. And uh, they would talk about the Great Pyramid a lot and, you know, how it was so highly engineered. So I was kind of brought up in this uh, question everything sort of mentality, and it just stuck with me, and that's how I got started with it. Yeah, I, it sounds a lot like uh, that was this generation's 9-11, uh, because 9-11 was a oh, yeah. pretty big wake-up to a lot of people. Obviously, this last year, as I always say, has been the, the biggest wake-up, because it's right there in your face every day with the mask, you know, everything. But I don't want to go down the COVID trail again. <laughs> it's uh, really cool that your, your dad was conspiratorial, I guess, because <laughs> a lot of people during that time, I guess, were, but it the so social media wasn't really a thing, so it was very isolated. And it's really cool that you grew up in that place because a lot of people think that it's insane to question the JFK thing or any sort of narrative. And it's well, awesome that you had that. The, you have to remember something that, you know, I've, I've lived through all of this. I've lived through JFK, Ruby Ridge, Waco, BCCI, Watergate. You know, to me, it's one long... Uh, extension of the story of, of the coup d'etat that happened with the Kennedy assassination. So, you know, I look at this as nothing but a series of aftershocks. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it, it's not really true that social media doesn't drive this because the thing that 
the thing that people did back then was they got together, you know, to play cards, you know, have coffee and cake and play cards, and they'd talk about stuff all the time. And in a certain sense, they were much more open about that. So I remember those discussions over over those card games that my parents and their friends had very well. And, and they were all narrative questioners. And that was fairly typical of the day. It's just that people didn't, uh, they didn't talk about that sort of stuff with people they did not know and trust. But it was definitely there. I can't, I can't remember any of my relatives that bought the Kennedy narrative. None wow. Did. That's yeah, awesome. That's, that's absolutely bananas to me, just because I know to this day, um, my parents still completely believe the exact narrative yeah, uh, lot do. that we've all been told, whether it be by now, you know, history, history books from what people learn and whatnot. I, I had never even heard of the conspiracy theory until this podcast. And uh, I, I told Joe, I said, I think other than maybe Micah Dank's work with the Astro Theology, the thing with the JFK assassination absolutely blew my mind off because mm -hmm. I, I would never have expected that. Well, we had a guy on that. That's kind of his, his specialty is history right. and the JFK assassination and like very specifically. And, uh, it, that opened Ben's mind up a little bit to the whole thing. And we're, we're after the JFK thing, but it is an interesting one to go back and look at. And for you to say that even back then they were questioning the narrative as it was happening is pretty huge. Yeah, Old school. You've got, to remember, you've got to remember something. The, the, the first people that started questioning the narrative were almost right out the gate with the narrative. Uh, when the Warren Commission was was released, the report was released, all 26 volumes of it, you had two very famous people that really kicked off the whole JFK assassination truth community, let's call it. One was a lady by the name of Mae Brussel, who actually began a radio talk show that was quite famous at the time and questioning the narrative because she went through the whole Warren report. It was published without an index. So she went through the whole report and indexed it and started talking about what she had discovered. The other uh, person that kicked off the, the Kennedy narrative questioning was, was a researcher by the name of Harold Weisberg that wrote two books called Whitewash in, in the 60s, uh, 66, 67, right about then. And, you know, he took all sorts of grief, but no one has really improved on the basic scaffolding or narrative that he constructed even back then. So it took longer for the Kennedy assassination to be questioned by a, a lot of people. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a case of the Rolling Stone gathering some moss because you did have authors publishing books and slowly the narrative started to unravel. So, yeah, it, it, it was kind of like 9-11, but without the social media, it happened a lot slower. Yeah, uh, we're, we're in we're in the uh, fortunate position that, you know, they put out these narratives and now there's this skeptical alternative research community that begins to take narratives apart almost yes. as soon as they appear. But that was the case with Kennedy. It just happened slower because you didn't have the social media. So you had people writing and reading books. You had a few talk shows around the country that would talk about these things. And slowly, slowly, that narrative was overturned, in my opinion. Well, yeah, it wasn't even just that there was no social media. There wasn't Internet. If you right. wanted to if you wanted to find something, it was either you called somebody on the phone right. or you read it in a newspaper. And that right. was that's it. And 
or you you know i think that's partly where i think joe was talking about it's crazy that you guys were questioning it as it happened Mm -hmm. because without that overbearing um social media presence that we have today um that word of mouth kind of Mm anti-narrative i could definitely see it taking a lot slower to get going but it's still fascinating that it was still a thing happening because you don't oh, hear yeah. that. You barely hear about the conspiracy theory itself, much less the people that were in the moment, you know, uh, disregarding the narrative they were being fed. Well, it's pretty well, interesting thing, that we're, the other oh. thing that the other thing that happened with with the Kennedy narrative and the way it began to fall apart was, of course, uh, the lawyer Mark Lane. Mark Lane had worked for Kennedy's campaign when he was running for president in 1960 and had worked for his campaign in New York City. So you have this high-powered New York City attorney, you know, that had worked for his campaign. And then he's contacted by Marguerite Oswald to represent her son post, uh, post-mortem, which he did. And he started to dig into the whole thing, too, and published a number of books. So this began to happen. You know, nothing, nothing really has changed in the immediacy of people's response to it and questioning it. It just took a lot longer for the questioning to get out there and, and in the mainstream public eye. Um, the other thing that really did it was when Walter Cronkite did, <laughs> did that uh, interview with LBJ after he had left the presidency. He did an interview with uh, Lyndon Johnson at his ranch and actually asked Johnson if he thought it was a conspiracy and and Johnson finally came out and admitted yes it was and then Johnson had Cronkite remove that response from the public record so it never made the actual television presentation but he did do that and word of that got out as well so you know is is there any kind of uh substantial evidence left of that yeah you can go on YouTube and see it (laughs) oh good it's, i'm gonna do it's, that <laughs> it's right out there <laughs> that sounds like early uh project mockingbird stuff uh-huh. you know, yeah, for, forming exactly the narrative yeah that's exactly what do you it think, is do you think that part of why it, it may have been slow moving is because as a whole especially you know 50 years ago 56 years ago people they didn't want to question such a sensitive uh item as like, you know, the president being assassinated. I, I think part of it is that because people still believed in, let's let's call it the American narrative, you know, this country can't do no wrong right. and it's the shining city on a hill and we're all righteousness and virtue and everybody else. Our judicial of, system will always right. be fair. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but that was really the first, chink in the armor to that narrative and for you know again i go back to myself as a boy seeing that happen in real time and watching it in real time and getting this feeling that i was being fed a bunch of lies and then to have the warren report and those diagrams published in the newspapers of the magic bullet doing all of these somersaults and you know (laughs) (laughs) that it was doing you know this is nonsense this total nonsense. And it was that more than anything else, at least in my case, that made me intensely skeptical. And from that point on, you know, basically everything that that has happened since then has just 
reinforce that skepticism in my mind. And, you know, this latest thing, as you said, uh, the COVID uh, plan scandemic, as I like to call it, um, has really kind of ripped the mask off. You know, these people are <laughs> inveterate liars and they're just open with their lies. And a lot of people can see it. Thank goodness. Yeah. I mean, luckily, a lot of people are, but there's still a wild amount of people that are just sure. su sucking off the teat of narrative yeah. warfare still. And it's crazy to me after everything we've seen. I mean, I guess by saying everything we've seen, I mean, everything we in this general community have seen. But it, you'd think it would be a lot more obvious to a lot more people. But I still went to the store 20 minutes ago and there's still at least 50 percent of people with their whole face oh, yeah. covered and wiping down surfaces. And, and I'm yeah. just like, oh, my God, what? Well, look, what you know, I, I get that, too. When I go out, I I never wore a mask going out. I, I bought myself a face shield. OK, <laughs> so I'd go out shopping in the grocery store with this face shield on and i had angry people coming up to me and you know that's not going to keep the virus out you can still breathe the air and i said well neither is a face mask that's like <laughs> trying to i said that's like trying to erect a chain link fence to keep out mosquitoes oh that's exactly it. <laughs> totally yeah. true yeah <laughs> i love that that's why uh, a good quick analogy. plug it's not an affiliate sponsor but i love people to know about this it's called fakemaskusa.com i have four of them they're amazing yeah they're just mesh so it's just mesh I know. and oh, oh they're so great <laughs> they're well great. we're going to las vegas in july so we have to fly on a plane with our kids and i'm like i'm not putting a fucking mask on my kids for <laughs> for that amount of time and i don't know what the climate's like in las vegas but no we're gonna be wearing fake masks the entire time if they want us to we'll be like yep we can breathe that's all that matters i i know it's you know it's 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 such nonsense that that they've foisted on the public with this with this masking narrative you know for one thing it increases hypoxia which is a perfect environment for the virus to grow absolutely uh, the virus which we haven't really successfully isolated yet but hey you know who's, <laughs> yeah who's, who's who's quibbling here uh, yeah and the vi and the vaccine is a an experiment but they're like no it's mandatory in some places like that's insane to even me even in texas I you was just telling me earlier about a, a judge in texas ordered that employers could mandate this experimental it was vaccine a hospital yeah the hospital the was hospital. mandating it yeah that major hospital in texas and it was texas which is extremely crazy because texas is super uh i mean well, liberal in their way the with vaccine, like hating masks every time i think of the vaccine i think of the opening of macbeth you know with the witches toil 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 and trouble cauldron <laughs> bubble and, yeah you know, eye of newt <laughs> oh yeah right <laughs> you know as far as i'm concerned they're quack scenes you know because there's there's another agenda in my opinion but anyway you know this the, the whole thing has made me very skeptical of most of the stuff that this government uh, wants people to believe, uh, you know, uh, you can't live through Kennedy and Watergate. You know, I was glued to the television set when the Watergate hearings were going on. And, you know, I, I remember to this day, Senator Baker asking, uh, I think it was John Dean, what did the president know and when did he know it? You know, and, <laughs> and Dean's waffling answer, you know, <laughs> I've lived through all that stuff. And like I say, as far as I'm concerned, those are sequels to to the Kennedy story because I I do view that as a literal coup d'état. It empowered a group of people that we now call the deep state, and they've been at it ever since. So 
They've probably been at it for a lot longer than we even realized. I know. What about like bootlegging in the 20s, like when they abolished alcohol and then like the Great Depression and then the like World War II? I just feel like a lot of it, people that grew up in those times were the people who questioned Kennedy were who just like, what is this happening for? This is nuts. Oh, yeah. What do you think about some World War II stuff? Because there's a lot of wonky shit going on there, too. And Ben is a big fan of World War II stuff. So what? Well, like, what are we talking about? When you, I mean, World War II is a kind of a big subject. I mean, <laughs> you know, if, we can, if we can narrow it down to something specific. We'll toss this over to Ben. Of- yeah. <laughs> so there's there's several um but one of them being um and probably the larger narrative uh or overbearing shadow narrative of it is the idea of the 1890 conference that they had where the um original zionist uh were formed not to be confused with jews um but you gotta add that (laughs) yeah uh, but the bigger kind of more seamless picture is the idea that um, most of what Hitler had been painted as was not in fact his goal nor uh, what he was really trying to accomplish Uh, that that was more or less um, the big scary propaganda picture that was painted of him to garner support in taking him down Um, the idea that the concentration camps things like the gas chambers at Auschwitz um, Okay, let, let me stop you. Yes. I, I, I know what you have been exposed to <laughs> okay. and what you are asking. For, I'd like to say this real quick. I'm not a Holocaust denier. Okay, well, I'm not one of those. Neither, <laughs> neither am I, nor am I a Holocaust revisionist. However, um, I will say this. In 1910, at the 10th Zionist Congress, Max Nordau, who was one of the Zionist leaders at the time, along with Theodor Herzl, uh, made a statement, and I'm going to paraphrase it as closely as I can, and I'm going to tell you why the paraphrase can only be close in just a minute. He said something to the following effect, how dare the clever babbler, the vain bureaucrat, the crowned heads, talk of peace and prepare for war when there are none but the six million intended victims to raise a voice in protest against it. Now that was in 1910, four years before the outbreak of World War I. Now that the reason I can't give you an exact quotation is because that that paraphrase occurs in two places. It occurs in a book by Ben Hecht, who was Jewish, uh, called Perfidy. Ben Hecht, incidentally, you might remember, is one of the major screenwriters for The Twilight Zone. So this guy is not a fly-by-night. He wrote a book called Perfidy about the trial of a Jewish lawyer by the name of Rudolf Kostner in Israel in 1955 for his role in helping the Nazis round up Jews and ship them off to Auschwitz. And it's a true story. The other version of the quotation, which I was able to track down after many years of looking for it, I found it in the Library of Congress, that's a long story. Trust me, it's a very long story. 
But that occurs in a book called Max Nordau to his people, which is a set of his speeches that was edited by Rabbi Stephen Wise, who helped establish and organize the Jewish boycott of Nazi Germany. Now, Rabbi Weiss's book, incidentally, was deposited at the Library of Congress on December 19th, 1941. I have the copyright receipt uh, photocopied in my files. Um, that book was deposited, in other words, for, for copyright deposit, mere days after Pearl Harbor. Uh, I found the book quite by accident because I had signed the call slip for it at the main desk and, and they came back and said they couldn't find the book. I found the book in the reference room of the main, uh, main reference room where it had been misfiled in the Judaica section. Uh, so in other words, there was a bit of an effort to keep that, that book out of, out of public view. I imagine, but, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot going on there with Nazism and Zionism that I'm quite convinced is a story that we still have not learned the full extent of. But you can go check books like Christopher Simpson's Blowback, which is a very good book, uh, Essential Reading, where he talks about the SS helping train the Haganah, which was the Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish guerrillas in Palestine to revolt against the British uh, mandate in Palestine. So it's a very murky history that few people know. But yeah, I do agree that there's a lot suspicious. That's a place to start looking. Uh, are those Zionist Congresses? And when you do, you're going to run into something very peculiar. And I'm not even going to tell you what it is. If you do your homework, you'll know what it is. And you'll come back to me and you'll say, is this true? <laughs> Fair enough. Well, yeah. yeah, there's, yeah, there's, Corey might have shared that with it. Like, yeah, we have a lot. We have a guy on a couple, a couple times a month. I don't know. That, oh, Corey, yeah. Yeah, he's super into that. And he sounds super, he sounds very anti Jewish. And he's not. He's just trying to really delve in. And he, he tries to make well, sure if, that if, everybody knows that too. Yeah, well, he's not thing, being racist thing, or awful. The thing, the thing to do when you, study Zionism is go to the Jewish scholars that have studied Zionism, Alfred Lilienthal and Hannah Arendt and people like that, who point out their, their objections to it. Uh, and it's much more potent coming from them than from anybody else. So yeah, I would urge sure. you also to check out, uh, pardon me, people like Alfred Lilienthal. He wrote a big book called What Price Zionism? It's about yay thick. Um, those are the people to consult. I would urge you to stay away from all of the uh, other stuff that's out there that's of dubious quality. <laughs> Let's put it that way. No, that's fair. That's, Thank you. That's, yeah, that's really the... that's good to hear because it's it's hard to find good research, and when you don't know what you're researching, it's that's what good. I was say. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's good it's, to go down a path that will be the most enlightening. Especially I now, I mean, it's so hard to find a, a good source <laughs> that you can actually trust to be correct. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't trust anything. We're at the point now. We've had several discussions before yeah. that. Um, it's hard to trust anything history by itself and then the sources that tell you about history. And then there's people that say, no, this isn't right. This is what actually, you know, it, it gets so jumbled. And the, the farther you go down any of these rabbit holes, the more it's just like, I don't know who to believe anymore. And that's where the origin of the black pill is. It's like, fuck everything. Nothing matters. We don't know what's going on. How far are you down the black pill path? Do you, uh, 
just believe like no history or a little bit? No, I, you know, like I said, I'm a documents researcher and my academic background really just kind of drills into your head that you, you read, read, read as much as you can and you start drawing connections. And that's what I do. Um, I don't say that I don't trust history, but by the same time, I take kind of a skeptical view to public narratives and try to dig down into stories um, in a rather different way and question, question the narrative. You know, for example, most people are unaware that when Nazi Germany surrendered, it surrendered twice. There was a surrender ceremony in Reims, France, where Colonel General Alfred Jodl surrendered on behalf of the German military, on behalf of the Wehrmacht. And then there's a surrender ceremony two days later in Berlin that's reenacted where they bring in Field Marshal Keitel and Admiral von Friedeberg and so on and so forth. And they have another surrender ceremony where again, the German military surrenders. What's very interesting is you cannot find any document from that time where the Nazi party surrenders. And the allies were certainly in the position to have someone representing the Nazi party surrendering and branding it a criminal organization, and they don't do so. So it's those kinds of little facts that I look for and try to explain. And that means mostly I rely on public record, but I just put a different interpretation on it. That's probably one of the best ways to be. I mean, you, you're a, a expert researcher, obviously, and I don't have time in my day to actually pour over documents like you do. Um, but when I hear other people talk about documents and just, it's just kind of a devil's advocate thing here. I just don't know how much to trust from documents either. I don't, I mean, you know, the whole history is written by the victors thing. I don't know how much to trust from anything from any history, you know, history document, any government document, especially government documents, actually. Especially government documents that we're allowed to read and see. Right, like FOIA. And, and sometimes it is in your face where they'll allow you to see it because they expect that the public won't care. They well, expect would, they won't pour urge, through it. I would urge a lot of caution with that approach. Um, let's take another famous case and that is the case of, you know, the, the standard narrative of Hitler committing suicide in the bunker. Well, every person that relates that story is a Nazi. In other words, they were, the story is constructed on the testimony of Germans in the bunker with Hitler at the time. So stop and ponder the following problem. For 12 years, and particularly during the war, the Allied powers have excoriated the Nazis as inveterate liars, which they were. And then all of a sudden we're being asked to believe them when they say that, oh, this is how Hitler died. He committed suicide here in the bunker with Ava Braun. Now there's a problem with that. And here's the way you, you can nail down the problem. If Hitler had a life insurance policy with the Prudential, let's say, would the Prudential have paid on the life insurance policy on the basis of that narrative? Answer, probably not. Because you don't have any uh, certifiable, indisputable proof that that is how he died. You've got secondhand hearsay testimony of impeached witnesses. 
<laughs> so, you yeah. know, to use to use the legal term. So what you have to do is look at the public record, dig into it, and try to see if there's an alternative explanation for what is there and what is known. That's fair. I mean, that's kind of how we read the news now. I mean, every single news article that comes out just now, and this could have been going on forever. I, I believe that it probably was, but there's a narrative inside every single mainstream media news article that's so, written. Especially when it's, it's blasted in your face yeah, 24-7. I started that's the doing most, that last like, year. Yeah, I didn't I didn't ever, I would read the news and believe it, but I wouldn't care. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't like, oh, this is what's happening. I care so much. But I started, especially with the COVID, whatever, I hate talking about it, but I would read it and be like, they're just trying to make people think a certain way and it's very obvious to me and I've never I had never looked at the news that way until about March or April of last year and now I look at everything that way so I can picture going back and doing what you're doing and researching it and looking at it in a completely different light because once you see it you can't unsee it so you can see it in every single thing it's like a little hidden code where you can kind of see what they're actually trying to do and you can actually almost picture the people that they're trying to talk to. Well, you have to, you have to, um, you have to put yourself as living or thinking of yourself as living in the old Soviet Union, where TASS and Pravda and so on are putting out news stories, and they're always putting it out with the narrative adjusted to the ideology. So it's not that they're they are constantly misinforming you because there has to be enough truth in what they're telling you to make it believable but you also have to be skeptical of the narrative and compare it with with other things that you know and compare it with other things that are part of the public record and that's you know unfortunately that means that we are in the position where we have to be responsible and go dig yeah and, and it's and hard and it that, is hard and it is time consuming but that's the only way to do it that, that is the yeah. hardest part is taking the time to actually dissect all that's what i was saying earlier is i don't have the time myself to actually dig through all these documents and kind of form a cohesive you know uh, idea of what's actually going on in my head that's why i love having people like you on that have Absolutely. done some of the the back end work you know and actually been like no Here's the documents. Well, I, this I is what I think tell, of this. I always tell people that what I do is high octane speculation, and that's, oh, that's what, what we is. do too. <laughs> that, that's what it is. You know, I put out I put out what I think has happened, and there may be another explanation for it. So you know, you, you can't let go of your own critical faculties. You, you just can't ever do that because once you do, they've got you. Absolutely. No, that's great because it's hard. People like to be comfortable and it's more comfortable to just believe the narrative and just take it as it is. And it's much harder just mentally to try to to be strong on your own. I, I mean, that sounds weird, but it's just harder to do that and be that person. And a lot of people will disagree with you. There's so much animosity towards people who do that so it's it's nice it's to hear that more it's like there's no, really no money in doing what we do like nobody's no. paying us a shitload of money. yeah i <laughs> know there's no money in it and it's hard work we're doing it out of genuine interest yeah. to figure out what the fuck's going on yeah we just kind of want to know but a lot of people are just more comfortable not doing that and so they don't want to hear you when you tell them hey this might actually be the narrative well the other thing to remember is you don't have to win the argument 
Oh yeah, there's we're, no argument. We don't argue. <laughs> we're, you know, hear me out. We are in the position of you know the parable of the sower and and the weeds. You're not expected to win the argument. All you're expected is to do is sow the seed. You don't know if years down the line something that you might have said as you're trying to to argue your position may have taken root and will bear fruit in some way that you cannot predict. So you don't have to you don't have to win the argument right then and there. The argument will win itself if the person that is listening to it is genuinely in some shape or fashion receptive to what you have to say. All we have to do is plant the seeds. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't I don't care if someone agrees with me or not. You know, I put out what I put out and maybe they'll take it and run with it in a different way and find out other things, you know, more power to them if they do. So, you know, that that's the way I look at it. And that's the way I think we have to look at it, particularly in the times that we're entering. I just said that the other day to one of my uh, listeners, shout out to Dusty. Uh, I was like, I don't, you know, we're, we don't, we're not have the biggest show, obviously it's fine, but I, I'm not worried about making big old waves. I said, I'm fine with like little ripples. Like if we can send out a couple little ripples to people and those turn into waves from there. That would be awesome. I'd be happy with that. Like you said, kind of the seed sowing thing. I planted a seed in Ben's brain about a year ago and look at the... Look at the plant growing yeah. out of that motherfucker's head. He's changed so much. It's so great. But no, there's so many people on the fence right now, and the media is trying to turn even those people who are on the fence and maybe thinking more conspiratorially, and they're trying to even get into their heads and flip them onto the side of getting vaccinated or wearing a mask. And it's nice to have shows like, I mean, ours, but like other bigger shows that are going to help those people out to realize, no, that that's not what you have to do. Right. So how far back do you go with your uh, document research? Because uh, I want to know what you think of like the pyramids in Egypt and old, like ancient history shit. Like how how far back can you go as far as your your uh, method of like document researching when it goes back that far? Because some of the bigger questions are ones like that, like where we came from, what well, what the fuck pyramids are, you know? Well, I go yeah. Well, I've written three books on on the Great Pyramid. Uh, it's called the Giza Death Star, the Giza Death Star Deployed, and the D Giza Death Star Destroyed. Uh, I've written several books on on the Nazis, and particularly their their uh, Black Project secret research, because I think there's a huge, huge story that we've been told that is completely untrue uh, with respect to to some of the Nazi Black Projects. Definitely, um, I've written a number of books on what I call a secret system of finance that has its roots in, in the Republic of Venice and so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I'm all over the board, but I actually, in terms of, of chronological time, I wrote a book uh, years ago that I call, that is called The Cosmic War. Uh, the subtitle of that is Interplanetary Warfare, Modern Physics and Ancient Texts. And I have always said and told people that that book is really the keystone in the arch of, of all the books that I've ever written. Uh, and that book takes us all the way back to three and 3.2 million years ago and examines, you know, examines the evidence celestially and, and physics wise for an actual war that was fought in the solar system that uh, I think 
occurred circa 3.2 million years ago. So in terms of time, you know, I'm all over the board. <laughs> That's why we love it. And so you're we like on too. board with um, other beings, UFOs, all that stuff? Well, let, again, that's a simplistic way to put it. I, I think that philosophically, I'm not opposed to the existence of extraterrestrials. Now, I have yet to see any convincing physics proof that we are being visited by people from outside the solar system. Uh, and this is the problem. I see a lot more evidence that there was something inside the solar system that may have been interplanetary in nature. But again, that's, uh, please note, I said may, <laughs> not was. You Absolutely. Know, I, We're not judging I'm, you. It's I'm okay. I'm speaking, I, I speak constantly in subjunctive mood, not indicative. So, I like that. You know, that's good. Um, you know, this is, this is my view, but um, I don't, I don't rule that out of the question, but again, my approach to it is via ancient texts. Virtually every mythology on the planet, from the Bible to the Vedas to the Popol Vuh and so on and so forth, has some tradition of some sort of war of the gods being fought right here in our neighborhood. And I tend to take those texts seriously and try to examine them from not only that point of view, but from the point of view as, okay, do these texts make any sort of, uh, or can they be read in the light of, or with the spectacles of, of modern physics and modern science? And lo and behold, when you approach them that way, yes, they can be read that way. So that's essentially my approach in those books where I'm dealing with those, with those ancient texts. That's yeah. That's kind of what I was getting at earlier with the uh, the Vedic text, text, especially with the Kali Yuga, and like where where do you think we where do where do we fall now? You know, right in this, in this fall, craziness. Right, right now you fall in the Kali Yuga. We're just right dead <laughs> so, smack in the middle. Bad, bad news. You know, <laughs> if if you're if you're damn. taking the Vedic cosmology as your guide, that's the bad news. God damn it! I <laughs> <You> knew it. <laughs> And, you know, as far as I can tell, the way things are going, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it does. And I hate to admit it, too, because every time I, I listen to something with the Vedas, I'm like, everything uh, yeah. points to this being the shit area. Damn it. We have like another <laughs> how many thousand years till the golden age again? Fuck. <laughs> We're I think so of far. everything like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I hate it, but we're so ignorant. It's like, how many times would you think like an ant saw a human and was like, oh, yeah, I saw one? Like, no, there's like a million ants in a colony. Like, they wouldn't <laughs> see a human and be like, holy shit, this thing saved me or squished my friend in front of me or whatever. But like, there's so many that wouldn't see something. So going back to where you were like, I have yet to see evidence of alien lifer you know extraterrestrials There's, i would agree with that 100 percent. like it's all <laughs> anecdotal first it of is all. but it's good to be open-minded and say like i don't know it's like in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy they're like making a galactic highway and just earth was in the way and we're just like oh okay well what else and they the one alien comes down and is like all right i'll save you yeah but like we didn't know and then all of the aliens making the highway are all like dmv workers like they're the worst like they're stupid and 
And it's so funny, though, because we could be in that and never know, ever. But we just think we're so fucking important and we don't know anything. And it's important. Like you were saying, like how you said, I, I say may. That reminds me of how we look at things, which is we don't know. That's the whole basis we of this We don't know show. what we don't know. And that's okay. Yeah, we just want we just he- listen to what people are saying but well, we don't have any ideas that are definite yeah there's well there's a difference between being skeptical and uh being so skeptical that you're too afraid to put out a speculative scenario and that's that's really what i'm about you know i think i think that's what we have to do now our scenarios may end up being wrong but in the process of putting them out, we might kick loose more information. And that's the whole, you know, that's the whole game here. And again, yeah. most most of what I do is public record. It's just I look at it in a very, very different way and, you know, ask basic questions. Uh, you know, how is it, for example, that uh, we are told that Nazi Germany was nowhere near the atom bomb? When in fact, if you look at the evolution of quantum physics and nuclear physics, basically the Germans invented it. So are we to believe that for six years during World War II, they suffered some sort of mathematical dyslexia and were unable to do all of this? Well, you know, (laughs) I don't think so. It doesn't make sense. Makes more sense to me that the Nazis were way ahead of us, especially oh, when yeah. you think about the the, yeah. the different theories of them escaping to Argentina. I mean, we have Project me, Paperclip as a standard, yeah. and they all came well, here. Like, look, I go into all of that stuff in my books, but let me tell you a little story. About 1940-41, let's remember the, the 1936 Olympics were televised. Okay, they, it was on television. And you can actually see pictures of these big, clunky German television cameras ringing the stadium there in Berlin in 1936. By the end of the war, the Germans had successfully miniaturized a television camera so that it could fit basically in a shoebox. And they were using these cameras on, believe it or not, television-guided missiles. But they had perfected their miniaturization to such an extent that they came out with a klystron tube, which is a kind of a vacuum tube. I have a picture of this little thing in one of my books, and it's about as big as the, the tip of your little fingertip. And this, this little tube came out about 1940, 1941. It was made by the Telefunken company in Germany. The allied equivalent of that vacuum tube, the British and American equivalent of that vacuum tube at the end of the war, 1945, was 10 times bigger. Wow. That's just one little tube. And when you, when you pile it all up, yeah, there was an explosion of technology inside of Nazi Germany that really is unbelievable. So the question is, what does that mean? What does it add up to? What does that mean for Operation Paperclip? What does that mean for the Soviet space program? What does that mean uh, for all those Nazis down in Argentina and so on and so forth? So in other words, it's a matter also of following the details and where they take you and what they might indicate about about the pattern of history in the post-war period. And, you know, on and on I could go, but uh, again, there's no substitute for doing the hard research. I mean, that's that's just the bottom line. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, we're coming up on uh, the top of the top of the hour here, but before we close out, I had to get your opinion on Sim Theory. It's something we talk about a lot. Simulation, hologram, matrix, whatever you want to call it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't discount it. Um, there is a there is this cosmology in certain areas of modern physics, with some very serious scientific minds that are propounding this, and. I, I ascribe some, some possibility to it. I'm not completely convinced of it, but by the same token, I'm not willing to throw it out altogether. Uh, but again, my answer probably doesn't make much sense out of the context of having read some of my books and, and what I have to say about things related to this. Uh, in, in many respects, I'll go further and say this, that the, the modern cosmologies, particularly in cosmological physics, seem almost willy-nilly to be reviving some very, very ancient doctrines in their own way and kind of uh, updating them, as it were. So I look at, I look at the holographic universe as kind of uh, a microcosmic universe, you know, going back to the Stoics and Plato and so on. Uh, updated version 2.0 so there's really nothing new under the sun yeah it makes sense i mean if you're looking at it like that i mean you you obviously have way more knowledge about all this stuff than we do and we're trying to piece together shit that we've got from other places and mm -hmm. so most of our i mean we're you know basically we're technically millennials huh fuck i'm not you, uh, you two I are. don't put myself in that category, <laughs> but uh, we grew up with technology and it's a lot easier. I mean, well, fuck, easier for us to be duped, I guess, but easier for us to wrap our heads around the idea of computers or, you know, te you know the matrix type of thing. I guess that's why it came out in the late 90s. But <laughs> Well, the, the one thing, the one thing that 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 cosmology has that I think is crucial is that it views the physical medium or the vacuum or the zero point energy or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it views the physical medium as an information field. And surprisingly, if you go back to certain ancient doctrines, again, Plato, uh, Plotinus, the Neoplatonists and so on, they had very similar views. So again, it makes sense to me for that reason. It's something that seems to be kind of hardwired into the physics of, of the universe. So, you know, again, I, I'm not ready to dismiss their, their thinking on that score. Yeah, and it could be something even, you know, n not necessarily computer-based, but when I think of a sim simulation theory, yeah, like what you were saying, it's more of a the idea of it. Like even well, you, you go down to atoms, they're like pixels, you know. Let me, let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, the Stoics and, and some of the Neoplatonists and certainly a lot of the early Christian church fathers had the idea of a kind of an operating system that had been downloaded into the universe. And they called these operating systems the Logi Spermatici in Greek, or in Latin, the Rationis Seminalis, the seminal reasons. In other words, everything that we know in creation has an operating system that it's hardwired that is hardwired into it and that is so to speak propelling it toward a certain goal or a certain end and you know again that's saying that there's an information field 
And, you know, you look at modern genetics, they're saying essentially the same thing. You've got epigenetics now, you've got the holographic universe theory. So again, these ideas keep coming back. Every time you think you're, you're about ready to get rid of them, they, they come back uh, full force. So uh, again, I'm, I'm not ready and willing to dismiss the idea of a holographic universe because that implies it's an operating system. Yeah, that's fair. So as we close out, though, I got to know, what do you think what happens when you kick the bucket? When you fuck off out of here, what happens? Well, I don't know. That's up to God. And, and <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that uh, he'll have mercy. And I'm, uh, relatively us, yeah. I'm, I'm relatively confident that he will. You know, I am. You For know, most people, maybe. Studying, studying patristics, you know, I'm obviously Christian, but... Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not of the modern American evangelical variety by the same token. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> obviously, you might, as you might guess. So. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I mean, these are why we have these talks. Those talk about it. You know, check other people's views out and make our own decisions up about it. Right. Which, which is what we encourage everyone to do. Don't yeah, listen you know, to us. Make up your own we, mind. That's all we can do is, you know, read the newspapers, watch the news, and, and try and keep ourselves informed as broadly as we can. That's all we can do. I love your mindset about it, though. You're so open-minded. You're one of the most open-minded people we've had on, honestly. And we all, three of well, us, believe it, think believe the same it or way. Not, believe it or not, studying patristics not only makes you a curmudgeon, it makes you a very open-minded curmudgeon. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I can completely picture that, where you just seem like you're so like, everything's awful, but I'm very (laughs) open-minded about it all being horrible and sucking. Like, so that's very cool. I appreciate that and can completely respect that because that's what I do to him every day. To Joe, I come home and I'm like, hey, I read this awful article. Here's what it said. Here's what it actually means, though. Like, means. Yeah. The, these dumbass people are reading it like this. And he's like, oh, wow. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I'm like, this our world sucks. Like, it's crazy. It's it's horrible. And I, I, I shouldn't say it like that. But I'm so blackpilled right now where I'm like, <laughs> everything is just the worst. But I'm in it. So I make the best of it because I have to because we're here so we have to do the best we can and get the most knowledge we can but also eh, be realistic about it yeah realism is a is a virtue it's hard that's what I was saying earlier it's hard it's very difficult to read the news and break it down and then believe it and then still go about your day living in the world with everyone else who doesn't give two shits about what you read or understand well, the good news is the universe is constructed in such a way that every time humanity wants to construct some sort of virtual reality, it has a way of snapping the rubber band back into place. Ooh, so yeah. I'm just sticking around, hoping I'll live long enough to see the rubber band snap, for the on snap this back. <laughs> oh, I can't right? wait. <laughs> I'm hoping for that as well. I'm like, I think I will see it because I feel like we've thought about this our whole generation however old you are we're all in this time that's pretty crazy there's been a lot of crazy times i guess but this one's pretty monumental it might snap back in our time and then we'll be like oh shit zombies what no i wasn't even planning <laughs> nobody on this. would be surprised though actually <laughs> no happens. we'd be like ah fine fucking zombies well, all right. yeah it's zombies yeah we, when, you, <laughs> when you're to the point that you have several zombies in the white house in succession um <laughs> there you go oh fair <laughs> things are pretty bad <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome the people we you know elect 
quote unquote. Yeah, we elected that they run our country. Yeah, awesome. Well, Zombies thank you for your time, sir. We really appreciate it. We're going to get you out of here on time. And, thank you uh, so much. Maybe yeah. we can do this again sometime. Sure. Yeah, just let me know. And thank you for having me on, folks. Absolutely. Right, appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.